Heavenly Father, we thank you for this season that we've just been singing about, this season of light that you brought into the world through the first Christmas, through our Lord Jesus, and for the celebrations that we have enjoyed. And we pray that now you would prepare our hearts and minds to receive the gift of truth and peace that you would offer us this day through the scripture. Lord, be our teacher as we turn to your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Do you believe that? Today being the first Sunday of the new year, it seemed like a fitting time to take a look at this verse about the times and seasons because we like to look back on the year that has just gone before, the highs and lows of it, and we like to look ahead, anticipating what's coming next and what are the adventures that God has in store for us. Now, you may have heard these words before. It's a very famous poem. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. But it seems to me each time you hear those words, each time you you listen to this passage, a different piece stands out depending on where you are, depending on which season of life you're in. Different things stand out for you. This passage comes from the ancient book of wisdom called Ecclesiastes. And it's dealing with the changes that God brings in the seasons of our life. And when I first chose this text to preach on about a month ago, what was standing out for me, of course, was obviously the first Sunday of the new year and and looking at what that means for us as we try to anticipate the new year. And we want to make plans. We want to know what God has in plan for us so that we can make wise decisions. And I also had on my mind the season of parties that we've experienced because of Christmas time and New Year's parties and all that. And then last week happened. And the events of last week brought a new focus to this passage. I opened up the paper yesterday morning and found this editorial by David Brooks. It's titled, A Time to Mourn. And I'm just going to read you one short paragraph out of this. If you listen to the discussion of the tsunami this past week, you received the clear impression that the meaning of this event is that there is no meaning. Humans are not the universe's main concern. We're just gnats on the crust of the earth. The earth shrugs and 140,000 gnats die. Victims of forces far larger and more permanent than themselves. It brings to mind verse 4 of this poem, hence the title of the editorial, A Time to Weep and a Time to Laugh, A Time to Mourn and a Time to Dance. But I didn't have to go to the newspaper. In fact, I didn't have to go to any world news at all to be struggling with that question. Just in the past week, I've been in conversation with three different families right here in our own church who have lost loved ones in the past week. In one case, it was a 16-year-old girl who died in a freak accident when her car rolled over her. And I was talking with the woman who had lost her 16-year-old niece. And all I could say is, 
it just doesn't make sense. And she said, no. At least not right now. Now, this is the type of problem that brings us to the whole point of this passage from Ecclesiastes. In fact, that is the fundamental question that this whole passage is dealing with. The question that people for all time have had to deal with. The most basic question of life is, what's the point? How do you make sense out of it all? And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to do here. It's a mystery too deep. It's a mystery that forces him into poetry to try to get a handle on it. Well, let me see if I can set the context for you of this writing. Tradition has it that it's written by King Solomon because it starts off by identifying the author as this king of Israel, this son of David. And we, we know that King Solomon was the wisest, and it speaks of this as being the wisest of all wise men. The wisest king that Israel had ever had and the wealthiest In fact, he had so much power and wealth that he could have anything he wanted. And he could try anything under heaven to try to find out the meaning of life. And he did. And he did lots of it. He did lots of trying. And we read about it. He tried all different forms of pleasure. He tried amassing wisdom. tried wealth, possessions, accomplishments, buildings, castles, gardens, slaves, singers and dancers. And not only that, he was a poet and a philosopher. He had it all. And what he discovered is that having it all left him feeling still empty inside because he couldn't answer the most basic question of life. What's the point? By his efforts, he couldn't answer it. That's where we get this writing from. That's where we get this poem from. I have a friend who's been through a lot of changes and tried to make sense out of life. He's been through a lot of success and failure at work. He's been through success and failure in his marriage. In fact, he and his wife really close came to getting divorced recently, a few years ago. They found their faith ended up being strengthened together. They ended up growing together, building a strong marriage. And what happened in the middle of all that was coming to faith, a whole new level of faith in the process. And my friend likes to say this about all those changes, trying to interpret what's going. He says, it's all plan A. And it's a cute saying, and it, you know, there's something true about that. In a way, it is all plan A, because it's all God's plan at some level. Doesn't it make sense to say that? I mean, if we're going to say God is sovereign and God is all-powerful, then isn't God responsible for what happens? So at some level, it, it does make sense to say it's all plan A. But yet there's something about that answer that just doesn't cut it for me. There's something about that answer that when a 16-year-old girl dies senselessly, there is no comfort in that answer. That does not make sense. And it doesn't make sense why it would be God's plan that 140,000 people would die in a tsunami wave. Is that the kind of God we believe in? A God who does things like that? I don't think so. Maybe it's better to look at it as a God who created a world in which there are things like earthquakes, who created a world where there is natural disaster. The world he created is dangerous. And he allowed it to be a dangerous world to put his people into. He allowed that to happen. And he allowed human evil into the world also. 
To make sense out of this then, we need to look at the times and seasons of God's own choosing in a bigger context. And as we read on in this passage, we find these words. What gain have the workers from their toil? I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds. Yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He's put this sense of past and future into our minds. And that is the same time the source of our frustration as we try to understand events like this. We try to understand God's plans. And it's also at the same time a sense of past and future is the very thing that draws us to God. It's that sense of eternity that he's equipped us with that draws us to God. He designed us that way. Because without that, what would it mean to be human? When you get right down to it, hope is what makes us human. Otherwise, without that sense, we might as well be just like any other animal. What would be the difference between people and animals anyway? They live, they die. They're made out of the same stuff of the earth. But there's a difference. We all know there's a difference. He's put into us this sense of eternity. He's equipped us with a soul that is big enough to grapple with that. And that's what permits us to have a soul that's big enough to seek a relationship with him. Hope. That's what makes us human. And there are a lot of different seasons of life. We're all in different seasons of life right now. There are seasons of life defined by age. There's obviously the season of birth, the season of growing, of learning and going to school. There's seasons of aging. There's seasons... Uh, I went to the eye doctor last week and discovered I'm in the season of presbyopia. <laughs> which means that I just got my first prescription for bifocals. And there are seasons that are not defined by age as well. There are seasons of taking on more and more responsibility, of working hard. There are seasons of letting go of responsibility. Seasons of simplifying. There are seasons of falling in love. There are seasons of maturing in love. There are seasons of mourning of a love lost. There are seasons of needing to make a job change, of struggling in a relationship. And in, in the middle of all these different seasons that we're all living in, there is one thing that I'm willing to bet is the same about all of them. For each of us, one thing, in one way in which all of our seasons are the same, and that is that whatever season we're in, there's something about the season that you and I are in right now that just isn't quite right. That if only something could change, there, there is something I hope for. In the coming year, there is a kind of change and a hope and a kind of renewal that I desire. And we find that that's hope that is within us, no matter what season of life we're in, is the thing that makes us human. And it's that season of change that draws us into the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. 
the wisdom of looking at the changing seasons of life. I know for me, it was in the middle of a big change of season in life that this passage, Ecclesiastes 3, became really important for me. It was at the time I was leaving Microsoft. This was a big change. Microsoft basically represented everything I had worked for in career and how much of myself I had invested in that kind of work. And here I was leaving Microsoft to go to seminary, and I'm thinking, me? Go to seminary? Become a pastor? You've got to be kidding. Why? It didn't really make sense. And it wasn't me trying to change the season. It was more of me responding to the season I discovered myself in. And this passage from Ecclesiastes 3 stood out for me so strongly that I changed the password on my computer to Ecclesiastes 3. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> the only problem was I couldn't spell it, so I abbreviated it. It was a really good password that way. And it's that way in our seasons of life when we see change. It's interesting to me that those are moments when we seek God. And there's something interesting about God is that he is a God who seems to thrive on change. He seems to like change. And I think that's one of the reasons that the world has a change of seasons in it. In fact, if you were to imagine a world without God, what would you imagine? C.S. Lewis tried. He tried to imagine a world without God, and he wrote a story about it. And the way he illustrated a world without God is that it was constant winter. It never changed. It was bleak midwinter with water as stone. Always. It was always winter and never Christmas. And it wasn't until Aslan showed up representing Jesus Christ that the season began to change. And the land of Narnia that he was writing about in the Chronicles of Narnia began to experience a thaw and a change of seasons. And life started budding out of the most unpredictable places. And that was his image of God's presence in the world. And you know what one of God's most favorite things to change is? You and me. He really likes that part. I just read an autobiography that was one of the most touching and beautifully written autobiographies I've come across. It's written by Tony Hendra, and the title of the book is Father Joe. And Tony grew up in Ireland, and as a teenage boy in Ireland, he became a devout Catholic. He even thought about becoming a monk and going off to live in the monastery. His life took a real turn, though. He ended up going to America after university and ended up as the editor of National Lampoon. So he's a professional satirist. <laughs> From a monk to a professional satirist. And a satirist's job is to poke fun of everything, right? And to show how senseless everything is, right? And Tony ended up evolving into an extremely despairing person with no meaning in his life. He ended up depressed to the point of suicide, attempted suicide, got divorced, survived the depression enough to get remarried, but the despair in him never went away. And as a middle-aged man, he heads back to Ireland to visit Father Joe. He thinks if he can just get into that monastery, even now, even in, middle, in midlife, 
He can make sense out of it all. And Father Joe gives him the gift of all time and says to him, no. He says, no, Tony. You were never cut out to be a monk from the beginning. He says, your true calling is as a father and a husband. Go home. And as that truth of that sinks in to Tony, his marriage takes on a whole new life. He and his wife begin drawing closer together and God ends up blessing them with the supreme gift. A son is born to them. And he changed his job. And he's experiencing a meaning in his life now that he had never known before. Because instead of trying to change the season, instead of trying to run away from the season that God had put him into and escape into his work and into the acclaim that he was getting in that side of his life, he started living into the season that God had designed for him. He started living into the relationships that God had put into his life. And that's where he found the meaning. He started living a life that was full of hope again. You see, our true vocation is always found in the things that connect us with eternity. With that capacity for hope and eternity that God has designed into us. Our true vocation is found in those moments that connect us with eternity. And we learn that the secret of life is to live in the moment, but not for the moment. To live in the moment, yes. To seek the gift that God has given you in this moment, but to live for eternity. See, God wants us to have that pleasure in life and to receive it as a gift that he's given us. We read on in this passage. He says right here in verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. In other words, in all the struggle that life throws your way. God wants that for us. He wants us to find the gift he's given us in those simple pleasures of life. Eating, drinking, family, parties. And the thing that gives those meaning is because we recognize them as gifts from him. As things that he's designed for good pleasure. We discover then that hope comes from a bigger context. If we were to try to make sense out of our season, just by looking at the circumstances we're in, how would that be any different than trying to make sense out of winter by just looking at the circumstances of winter? Why? Are we going to make sense out of it by looking around ourselves and saying, wow, everything's getting colder. The trees are dying. The sun is going away. Is that the meaning of winter? Does that trend go on and give meaning to the purpose of winter? Of course not. Any more than we can derive the meaning of the season of life that we find ourselves in today by looking at the circumstances that we're in today. Those circumstances aren't the point. It doesn't make sense until we look at the bigger context. And the bigger context is a context of life that God designed. He's shown us what His plan is. He's shown us how to tie the pieces together. We can read about it right here in Ephesians, in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. 
according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has revealed revealed his plan. He has completed the fullness of time. He has wrapped it up. He's connected the beginning and the end, our birth and our death, in Jesus Christ. And in that context, we will find the meaning for the hope he's put in us. Now, I started off seeking some practical wisdom out of all this. And I want to come back to that for just a moment and look at four points of practical wisdom I think we can get out of Ecclesiastes here. Number one, if you're straining to change your circumstances, like running away from pain or running away from an unpleasant circumstance or relationship, don't. If it's just a point of running away, the anxiety isn't going to go away. It's going to come with you. Instead of running away from a circumstance and making a change, let the change be a response to the change that God has brought about. We can't change the season any more than we could change that tsunami wave. But what we can do is respond to the season that God's put us in. We can recognize the gift that he's given us in the middle of each season. Number two, sometimes you just have to decide. Because you're not going to be able to figure it all out. You can spend a lot of time agonizing over what's going to happen. Should I turn left or right? Should I take this job or that job? Should I move here or there? Should I say yes or no to this relationship? And you're not going to be able to figure it all out, typically until after you make the decision. So just... Make a decision, but if you can make a decision that gives God an opportunity to work, then you can see his purpose unfold in it. So look at your decision as asking yourself, how can I make this decision in a way that God can bless? That God can bless that decision. And then watch and see how he works in it. Number three, focus on the things that you can change and let go of the things you can't. That's the famous serenity prayer of, Dear God, grant me the ability to change the things I can, the courage to change the things that I can, but also give me the wisdom to know the things I can't. Give me the wisdom to tell the difference. Live that prayer out. And finally, number four, work on changing the only thing you can change that God has given you dominion over. He hasn't given you dominion over the seasons. He hasn't given us dominion over time. What he has given us dominion over is our own hearts. We can work on changing our hearts and our attitudes. When we do that, we can enjoy what God has given us this day. We'll find that the meaning of joy happen when we connect ourselves with his eternal purpose and we live out the hope that he's given us. When we do that, that's called worship. And our whole life ends up being lived out in worship. And that's the last verse in this section of Ecclesiastes, which is that we should live knowing that he's given us the gift of these things, that they're a gift from God. And when we know that they're a gift from God, that's called worship.
Because God is able to take whatever season you're in right now and change it. He loves to do it. It seems to be his favorite thing to do, to change seasons. The seasons of nature, the seasons of our lives. He likes to reverse the season of mourning to a season of dancing. The season of weeping to a season of of laughter. He likes to bring summer out of winter. And most of all, his favorite thing of all, to bring life out of death. That's what he's best at. That's his job. Your job and my job is to give him the opportunity to do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word that reminds us of your context. Heavenly Father, thank you for life and thank you for the season that each of us is in right now even though we each have something we hope for that will change in that season, Lord. We know that you're the answer to that. We pray that you'll guide us and give us the courage to receive you as the gift that ties together the ends of time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.